Who makes a good teacher? Does it have to be the highest volume procedure surgeon in your hospital? Or are there skills to learn from your peers? In our previous podcast, we have discussed that one of the main challenges surgical trainees face today is access to a robot. And with this limited exposure, how can trainees build their experience and understanding of robotics? Is there a way to accelerate progression through a trainee's learning curve? I think everybody needs a mentor. I think everybody needs friends. And I think it's really, particularly as robotics starts to become more mainstream, this peer-to-peer knowledge transfer, shared learning is really important because every so often what you get is you'll encounter something with the robot that no one else will have encountered. And you'll be like, oh, I did this. What did you do? And do we need to think about the information trainees have access to? Are the right discussions being had? I think that... What we have to do is probably reshape what we're talking about when we talk about robotic surgical training. So I don't think robotic surgical training is just sitting at the console to do an operation. You know, I think it's so much more than that. And I think integrating the principles of robotic surgery are slightly different. And we never really talk about what are the key principles of robotic surgical training? You know, what are the key principles of robotic surgery? This is Surgical Robo Talks brought to you by CMR Surgical and the Association of Surgeons in Training, your source for all the latest in robotic-assisted surgery and education. In this series, we speak with surgeons and leading figures in medicine to help clinicians make sense of the developments, challenges and opportunities in robotic-assisted surgery. I'm your host, Jessica Butterworth, and today my co-host is Fahad Ullah. Hi, I'm Fahad. I'm ST5 colorectal trainee and also working as ACID robotic lead. My role in ACID is to increase robotic literacy and training opportunities for trainees, for which I have organized workshops, events, and webinars at the national and regional level. In this episode, we'll be speaking with consultant colorectal surgeon, Dina Haji, about how we can create effective experiences in surgical robotic training. We'll find out about Dina's own journey from surgical trainee to robotic consultant and find out how Dina is engaging the robotic surgeons of the future through her own mentoring. We'll also discuss how trainees can gain critical skills that will support them in their robotic careers and discover the important role mentors play, as well as how to find them. As a consultant, Dina plays a vital role in preparing tomorrow's robotic surgeons, but her transition to consultant practice only happened in early 2022, which gives Dina a unique insight into the psyche of the trainer and the trainee. So with the learning experience still fresh in her mind, what was her journey into surgical robotics training? So I started training about five years ago. In 2018, I was a SD7 colorectal surgical trainee in Sunderland at the time. And I had previously experienced robotic surgery much earlier on as a bedside assist a few years prior to that, but hadn't really considered that robotics was there for trainees until sort of the higher levels of my, or the sort of further years of my surgical training. So started in 2018, I did about 25 cases on a single console robot. And then I went on to do my final year of colorectal training, which was affected by the COVID-19 pandemic to some degree. And so I didn't really do that much robotic surgical training then. I then went on to do a really high volume 
robotic fellowship in Bordeaux under the auspices of Quintanzanos and I did 165 robotic TME resections which really spearheaded my robotic experience and I finally transitioned into consultant practice at Manchester at the beginning of 2022 and I now consider myself sort of a multi-platform robotic surgeon given that I am on the Da Vinci which is sort of my primary robot but I've started transitioning to use the CMR robot too. You mentioned you didn't start using robots until 2018 and obviously by then you had chosen your speciality and were well on your way to becoming a colorectal surgeon. Did you know robotics was the future in your speciality as in do you think it influenced your decision to choose colorectal surgery? Or was this just a happy coincidence and robots came along later? It probably decided I was going to be a colorectal surgeon much earlier than that, so back in sort of 2009. Interestingly, I did a PhD in Leeds, and at the time, David Jane was running the ROLAR trial. And that's when robotics was just coming into the sphere, particularly in the United Kingdom. But it was very much for a select number of surgeons, select number of centres. It wasn't probably until 2014 when we started to see the increase in robotic colorectal surgery in the United Kingdom. And in about 2015, I was a surgical trainee in Middlesbrough and they had a robot and I was expected to assist and do some bedside assists on the robot. And again, I think the emphasis in your earlier surgical training is the acquisition of, you know, basic minimally invasive skills and basic open skills. And then you start to progress that. My interest came for two reasons. One was that despite the fact that Rolar wasn't able to establish a definitive evidence base for rectal cancer, it certainly established a evidence base in terms of the possibilities of where robotic surgery could take us. But it also established a group of interested colorectal surgeons. And at the same time, the accessibility for robotics was starting to increase. The other side of that was that my laparoscopic skills were actually quite good and I was signed off for laparoscopic surgery. And I believe in trying to work out, well, what can I do next to make myself better, to make my skill set better? That led to me ringing up Golan Farouk, who was my consultant, to say, you know, I've done single port laparoscopic surgery. I'm signed off. I want to go on to train robotically. Will you be able to train me? And there was two reasons for doing that. Sunderland had an established programme. They had done surpassed 100 robotic colorectal cases and they had three trained colorectal surgeons. So the environment was ripe to bring on the senior trainee. I think training has changed a huge amount since then. But my experience was very much in what I consider the infancy of robotic surgical training in the United Kingdom. But I think it was my ability, my laparoscopic ability and my surgical ability, coupled with my curiosity and an established robotic program that really spearheaded it all. You touched on there that the accessibility of robotics for trainees has been very difficult. And this is a very hot topic at the moment. Earlier, you mentioned you were lucky to go to Bordeaux. Do you have any advice for trainees to be able to access an experience like that? How did you get that opportunity? So I'll answer the second question first. So the opportunity came because I was a, or I created the opportunity rather to do a fellowship with somebody who A, I really admired and B, who had a practice that I was really interested in. So some of it's about creating those opportunities. So you have to be a bit forward thinking and working out, well, what do you want your career to look like? And I think that when trainees now say to me, I want to be a robotic surgeon, I sort of think, well, 
actually that's just aligning yourself to a modality of surgery that's not aligning yourself to a subspecialist interest because in the future everybody's going to become a robotic surgeon and so then you become just another robotic surgeon whereas if you create yourself an identity within a subspecialist pathological area it's very different and it expands your horizons the second thing was about where do I think trainees should go with regards to access and I think currently that's quite difficult in the UK climate because first of all you have to be able to do the operation you have to be able to understand the principles of that operation but you should take it a step back you need to understand the disease process and the pathology then if you want to bring robotics into the sphere of practice you need to understand how that robot works how it interacts you need to understand the complexities that robotics brings into the theatre environment and then how you utilize the robot to its maximal efficiency that's a long process that is i'm going to do 50 to 60 cases and really really drive this program Currently in the UK, I think what we're starting to see in sort of 2023 is senior trainees are starting to get access to the robot, probably because they've achieved all their other competencies. And junior trainees are wanting access to the robot. I think realistically to become, you know, a proficient surgeon. And what do I mean by that? I mean, someone who is trained within the device and the platform, but then someone who can utilize it to its maximal efficiency on day one as a consultant is going to take a high volume fellowship probably outside of the UK. Um, how we negotiate that or how trainees negotiate that depends on their surgical subspecialty. But there are lots of um, national and international fellowships available. And I think we'll continue to see an expansion in that. At the same time, I think NHS England needs to look at how they address this need and this demand for access to robotic surgery. So... Um, with your experience, uh, does robotic-assisted surgery enhance or detract from training experiences? That is, is being a spectator going to reduce the skills for some, or is bedside assistance important? You have to think about what your perception to robotic surgical training is. So most trainees want to just get onto the robot and do the operation. It doesn't work like that. Um, so the robot is a complex device and we are bringing a complex device into a complex clinical setting, which is theatre. And then we're changing the dynamics of how your theater, your operating environment is. And so I think that all of those non-technical skills are probably completely underplayed in the robotic sphere. And I think if you're going to be a, a competent robotic surgeon, then you have to have all of those key skills. So now I'm a, you know, consultant surgeon um, and you know a trainer my robotic training pathway really focuses on all of those upfront skills because they are the key skills that you need to complete an operation successfully timelessly efficiently and seamlessly at the console and I get a little bit disappointed when my trainees say I'm just assisting you're not you're learning a key part of the robotic theatre I don't think of them as being assistants. I see them as being, you know, robotic operators because what they're learning at the bedside is actually platform console interaction. And they're learning the interplay between what you do at the console, how those movements are then translated and transferred at the patient bedside and the platform itself. And then how to deal with some of the difficulties that you might have at the bedside, like instrument clash, like difficulties with instrument exchange, how to create seamless and efficient instrument exchange and how to communicate appropriately and if you can't do those things you're never going to transition to the console i think transitioning to the console 
is probably is the thing that people always place the most emphasis on without understanding the dynamics of what's going on and without understanding the interplay. Device training or platform robotic training has to focus on that. And so I don't think it detracts any trainee. I think it enhances your performance. I think it gives you a whole host of skills that you don't consider. And I think the trainees that really flourished, and in my experience, the trainees that have really flourished are the trainees that have got that bit and they've really understood it because they become much better console surgeons. And the reason they become much better console surgeons is because their knowledge of the platform is so in-depth. Over the course of her career, Dina has been lucky enough to work with multiple platforms, giving her a rare insight into the different robotic systems. So with this insight, what can Dina tell us about her experience between each system and if there is a transference of skills? Could some systems perform better for one speciality than another? And most importantly, what are the key aspects of robotic-assisted surgery that a trainee needs to understand? So just started my CMR training. It's quite interesting going back to VR sim training, you know, five years on. It's also interesting in terms of looking at how the each individual platform works in its own because each platform has its own nuance. And I think what's been most interesting is that actually the principles of robotic surgery are the same. So once you get your robot docked and you get all your instruments in, you do the operation, it's exactly the same, you know. Um, so what you have to learn is you have to learn how the platform works and how the platform interacts. And um, it's about understanding the mechanics of that robot. And I think that that has been a really interesting experience. The reason it's been a really interesting experience is, is that most of the platforms have some similarities in some way or, you know, some form, but they also have some differences. And I think that what will be really interesting to me and the reason that I sort of decided to broaden my horizons of multi-platform operating is to work out where each platform comes into its own with its own benefit in a particular setting because no platform is perfect but I think each one has its own strengths and limitations. I think for me the immersive experience of an open or a closed console make no difference because that lends itself to the the principles of robotic surgery so if this 3D immersive operating experience the non-technical skills and the communication are relevant to all of them. So I think it doesn't really make a huge difference whether you're open or closed. I think obviously geographically and in terms of, you know, human nature, everybody feels much more closer to you because they can physically see you rather than your head burrowed into a closed platform. But I think what you need to do is really work on what your non-technical skills are and what your like key communication prompts are. So I've done a lot of that and I have a lot of intraoperative check-ins. I did a lot of that consciously and now it's become subconscious with my team. So, you know, I know how to check in with them. And I think that's irrespective of whether I'm on an open or a closed console. So for me, I think it was this acquisition of early non-technical skills, which has allowed me to make that transition quite smoothly across platforms. So I haven't found personally that it's any different. I think you've hit the nail on the head there. Communication is key when it comes to robotic surgery, and it's definitely a team activity and not just the surgeon. Have you had any feedback from your team at the bedside to see if they prefer operating when you're in an immersive console compared to an open console? 
I suspect they'll say they prefer me when I'm in an immersive console. <laughs> <laughs> it would be interesting to ask them, at the risk of sidetracking slightly and going back into my engineering roots, when Versus was being designed, we held focus groups and asked surgeons and surgical teams for their views comparing an open console with a closed console design. So there wasn't much in it for the surgeons. It was sort of a 50-50 ratio, but 100% of the bedside team preferred the open design due to communication and they preferred the open access to the surgeon. So as you mentioned earlier that you applied for fellowships when the consultants were still under training as well. So how do you think how the training in robotic surgery has evolved and what more needs to be done? Will a national curriculum help? I think robotic surgical training has evolved hugely. I think that there has been this huge surge in robotic surgical training from trainees and a demand. And I think to industry's credit, you know, they have started to acknowledge that. Now there clearly is a training pathway. So Da Vinci has their um, residency and fellowship requirements. We've just trained our first trainee on CMR and she was doing a case last week. So we've started to forge a pathway for CMR. You're starting to see more training portals available. So the VR simulation has really stepped up and you're starting to see sort of mixed reality with the headsets um, coming through as well. I think what you have to consider for any robotic surgical platform is it's a responsive environment. It's an evolving landscape, okay? Um, it's going to continue to be an evolving landscape. And so what you have to do is you have to be responsive to that as a community. And I think that we haven't got that quite right at the moment. I think it's probably a bit slow. And the reason it's a bit slow, particularly with robotic surgical training for trainees, is that that landscape has always considered the needs for established consultant surgeons. And I understand that. I understand that is because to be able to deliver a national curriculum, you are going to need a trained pool of robotic consultant surgeons who are trained trainers. And so until we get there, there is little value in bringing together a curriculum to mandate that you have requirements and so we, particularly in general and colorectal surgery, need to see a huge expansion in the output of robotic operations before we mandate a training curriculum for trainees. That's the official part. There are lots of unofficial ways where you can bring in robotic surgical training through institutional organizations like the Association of Colopatology or ASGBI or ASSET. So it's about creating lots of opportunities to train whilst increasing your trained pool of trainers to then be able to mandate a curriculum. Okay so just to deep dive into that a little bit further you mentioned it's important to find opportunities to train with a robot but if we look at medical school students first then move on to your foundation years and then obviously your core training years what would your recommended level of exposure of training be at each stage? So, for example, I've spoken to many trainees at conferences and run hands-on sessions to give them a taste of sitting at the console. And then they often ask for more access to the robot. They want to know the buttonology and become fully trained on the system. But sometimes they don't actually have a robot yet in their hospital. And obviously, when they qualify, they could move to a different hospital with a different robot. So from recently going through that training pathway yourself, but sort of looking back now as a consultant and understanding that there's training degradation considerations, what do you think is the appropriate training or exposure level should happen at each point? 
I think it's really difficult because I was a trainee. I was wanting to get onto the console. I was frustrated at some points. I was trained and then I couldn't get access because my trainer wasn't trained sufficiently. Then, you know, I'm now a consultant and I have to develop a program. And then I've still got trainees who want access. So I get both sides of the coin. I think that what we have to do is probably reshape what we're talking about when we talk about robotic surgical training. So I don't think robotic surgical training is just sitting at the console to do an operation. You know, I think it's so much more than that. And I think integrating the principles of robotic surgery are slightly different. And we never really talk about what are the key principles of robotic surgical training? You know, what are the key principles of robotic surgery? And I think those things can be mandated quite quickly. I think when we talk about mandating for a curriculum, we're talking about minimum number of cases and we're talking about, you know, minimum number of dockings. And to mandate that is quite difficult when access isn't democratised across the United Kingdom. So I think teaching trainees, this is what robotic surgery is. These are the agnostic principles of robotic surgical training. These are the challenges of robots. And starting that conversation very early on is a good thing. I think it's the mandating that is difficult. And I can tell you this from my experience when I was a trainee and I was the president of the Dukes Club. So we colorectal trainees have real issue with access to endoscopy and access to sign off for their colonoscopy requirements. So we did a lot of work with JAG Health Education England to try and mandate colonoscopy as a CCT requirement. We then got it mandated. So now trainees have to get 200 colonoscopies. However, the landscape for endoscopy didn't change. And so what had to happen was that then we mandated it and then it was a a reactive strategy to trying to improve access to endoscopy for colorectal trainees so that they could get their numbers signed off rather than a proactive strategy which should be let's look at the landscape and how we can expand that landscape and make it more accessible so that when we come to mandating something we don't add increased stress of having no access or the volume is limited it has to be a parallel conversation But going back to your actual question, yes, of course, I think robotic surgical training should be for everybody. But it's about how you deliver that. It's about the principles, the fundamentals of robotic surgery, rather than the technical aspects, if that makes sense. What were your experiences transitioning from trainee to a consultant post as a robotic surgeon? And now as a trainer, how do you factor trainees into your work? So when you're a trainee, you're already in an established program. And usually if you're trained within your surgical training program, you're being trained by pretty competent robotic surgeons. So whoever is training you is confident and their program is reasonably successful with good volume and the theatre staff is set up. So you're training within the confines of something that's already established. And usually when you go to a fellowship, particularly a fellowship I went to, the program was seamless. There was no extra preparation that went into it. It was just part and parcel of normal everyday surgery. I then transitioned to consultant practice and what I did was bring lots of new techniques with me. So suddenly the challenges are amplified. So you're with a new theatre team, a novice theatre team. You're trying to introduce a technology to them that they might not have been familiar with. And then you're trying to bring in new techniques with alongside that but try to make that efficient as possible. And I probably spent the first six months of my like consultant life really building my theatre team up 
So I did a lot of dry runs with them. We did a lot of non-technical skills training. I was really, really communicative. And then before any operation that I did, I used to send them a checklist, basically, of like, this is what my port placement's going to be. This is the way the cart's going to come in to be docked. These are all the key steps of the operation. I did that for every single operation. And it made a huge difference to my theatre team because they would print off that prep list and they'd put it on the theatre wall and they'd say, which step of the operation are you at? Or they'd be like, oh, is this what you're doing? And it allows a bit more cohesion in the working environment. And they all become part of that immersive operation, which promotes better working and which promotes efficiency. And I think then that allows you to safely deliver a robotic operation and a new technique. I also video everything. And then I review some of those videos with them to say, look, this is where we could have got better. This is where an instrument exchange took us 90 seconds. Or this is where, you know, we cleaned the camera three times, which is really inefficient. But it's giving them their own data. And then alongside that, you know, when they transition to the console, it's not my decision alone. It's a departmental decision because all the other skills have to be at a certain level before we start to introduce complexity into their training pathway. So I think we've tried to do it in a really pragmatic way. I've been really open and honest and transparent with my trainees. And I've tried to develop everybody that's involved in the theatre environment at the same time, because actually the success of a robotic programme is not you as a surgeon, it's your theatre team. It's no secret that studying medicine is an expensive endeavour. And especially now in the current economic crisis, Never before has cost been a greater barrier to trainees getting access to robotic equipment. So I asked Dina, are there any low-cost solutions that can help trainees to acquire additional skills to make them effective robotic surgeons once they do get the opportunity to practice on a console? I think robotics is a high stakes business for all stakeholders involved. And I think there's no real low cost solution currently around that. So we have thought about doing some cool things in this space. So we we had uh, one of your colleagues come from CMR with the virtual reality headsets and our trainees all got hands on with that. But they are few and far between, I think, because they don't have access. We've talked about um, 3D printing solutions so to see whether we can 3D print robots but I mean we're a long long way off that so realistically what you need to think about is adjuncts so the robot is just one part of a robotic program but you have to think about all the digital solutions that come around it and all the digital adjuncts that come around it and I think probably the most exciting digital solution will be all all of the VR simulation that you're seeing and all of the mixed reality simulation that you're seeing and I think that that will expand accessibility for trainees we have a cadaveric lab in Manchester and we have a CMR robot that sits there. And we're thinking about maybe trying to get access for trainees to that to be able to access it. But I think we're going to have to think much more broadly, much more dynamically about what the solutions are and how we create bespoke hubs within regions where trainees can get access to robotic surgery in and out of hours. And that's going to take investment and that's going to require infrastructure and that's going to need to be equitable across the country to really see upscaling of robotics. I don't think a low cost, easy fix is the way to do it. I think this needs good central investment and it needs to tie in how that out of theatre, out of real life experience then translates into the real life 
you know, theatre setting. Um, and we haven't, we haven't figured that out. But I think that's what makes robotics a really exciting place to be. Because if you're interested in pushing the boundaries, if you're interested in new technologies and techniques, then this lends itself to you perfectly. Because, you know, there's so much scope for development, for adoption of new technologies, adoption of digital technologies. And I think that's what makes it exciting and interesting. I think trying to create a low cost budget solution is the wrong way of approaching it. So how important are mentors in robotic surgery and how did you find one? I think mentors in surgery full stop are really important. I think it's important to find someone who's not just a robotic surgeon and someone who's sort of aligned to your wider practice who also has a robotic practice is probably more important. And I think the other thing to say to trainees is that your mentors evolve, you know, so mentors are there for a specific period of your life. They don't need to be the same mentor for life. You know, you can have a different mentor based on your training career and your stage. I found mine quite organically. So I had a mentor who is an absolutely phenomenal surgeon um, who I have a huge amount of respect for, who was the one who's not a robotic surgeon. My initial robotic trainer and mentor I don't really rely on them as heavily as I once used to because I'm past that phase of training now. And I found him, Gordon Farouk, because I was working for him and he really sort of, you know, started me on this robotic journey. And Quentin Denost, who I did my fellowship with, I used to speak to him quite a lot in my first few months as a consultant. And now I don't speak to him as much, but I probably have a reasonable amount of contact with him but not because of robotic surgery, because of the broader things that we are aligned with and the broader interests that we have, because I think that that's more important. I think everybody needs a mentor. I think everybody needs friends. And I think it's really, particularly as robotics starts to become more mainstream, this peer-to-peer knowledge transfer, shared learning is really important because every so often what you get is you'll encounter something with the robot that no one else will have encountered. And you'll be like, oh, I did this. What did you do? And it's good to bounce your ideas off people or good to bounce off like challenges and solutions because they keep coming. But I think it has to be a bit broader than just learning about robotics. And where can you find them? You can find them anywhere. You don't have to work with somebody for them to become your mentor. You can approach people for official mentorship. You can have more sort of natural ways of and organic ways of developing mentoring relationships. It's up to you, actually. And I think most surgeons, they're more than happy to, you know, be part of a trainee's journey. It's a real privilege to be able to pass on whatever skills that you have. So as a new consultant, Dina, you have many years ahead of you using robotics and developing this field. So where do you think robotics will be in the next five years? Do you have any thoughts on what the next key advancements will be in this area? I think that it's a really exciting time for robotic surgery. I think we'll carry on seeing an expansion in robotic surgery and in robotic platforms. I think that we'll start to see the adoption of more robotic platforms, not just in my own surgical specialty of general and colorectal surgery, but in other surgical specialties. I think what we're moving towards is sort of, you know, what I consider surgery 4.0 or digital surgery. And I think the robot is that bridge between laparoscopic surgery and digital surgery, where we will start to really digitalize and make surgery more objective. And I think that is really, really exciting. You know, I think we'll start to get performance data, we'll get kinematic data, we'll get metrics that we've never really had as surgeons. And I think that will really transform what surgery will look like. 
alongside that, I'm very aware that we are working, particularly in the United Kingdom, within an NHS that is perhaps not as robust as it once used to be. And what I think will happen is that I think that robotics can coupled with digital surgery solutions will start to find innovative ways of working and I think that's what we need to think about. I don't think robotic surgery is the solution to the problems of the NHS but I think robotics will allow the introduction of more digital surgical solutions and I think that will transform hopefully our clinical practice and also hopefully try and make our current services and systems and structure more robust. Robotic consoles, regardless of manufacturer, are expensive pieces of equipment. And until robotic-assisted surgery becomes commonplace, it's likely to stay that way. So for trainees to get the exposure they need, training centres and consultants will need to be more creative and utilise the assets they have in greater abundance to keep trainees engaged, like VR, mixed reality, video, and good old-fashioned mentorship. That's it for this episode of Surgical Robo Talks. A huge thanks to Dina Haji for joining us today. If you enjoyed our discussion today, please leave us a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to our show. And join us next time when we'll be speaking with Justin Collins about the role big data and AI is playing in robotic assisted surgery.